so good to see you guys tonight. So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to Isaiah 53. It's about in the very middle of the Bible. Flip to the right a few books, and you'll find it. Isaiah was written about 700 B.C. And what we're about to read is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ ever. And you might say, but how was this picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ written in 700 B.C. if Jesus won't be born for 700 more years? This is called prophecy. And it's one of the many ways that we know that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And it's not just like reading a history book or a math book. It is the word of God. Because there were many prophecies, hundreds, thousands of prophecies that have been fulfilled to the very last detail. Isaiah 53 is one of the most startling of them all. But before I read Isaiah 53, let me read to you some very uh, tragic um, instances of when innocent people were executed. How tragic is that? To be innocent and to have your freedom taken away for a crime you didn't do, but even more than that, to be innocent and having your life taken away. Could you imagine being in a prison accused of something that you didn't do? Your name was out there. Your name was in the newspapers. Your mother was crying because of a crime that you were accused of. And you weren't there. You didn't do it. Can you imagine even more? Walking down a long hallway, escorted by guards, and your hands are in shackles, your, your, your ankles are in shackles, and they're, they're escorting you to a table where you're going to lay down, and you're going to be injected with poison and die for something that you didn't do. You weren't even there, but you were falsely accused. Well, that's what happened to these men. Carlos de Luna... And Texas was convicted in 1983, executed in 1989. However, a Chicago Tribune investigation released in 2008 revealed groundbreaking evidence that Texas executed the wrong man. Reuben Cantu, convicted in 1985, executed in 1993. A two-part investigative series by the Houston Chronicles cast serious doubt on the guilt of this man. David Spence, convicted in 1984, executed in 1997. Spence was charged with murdering three teenagers in 1982. However, after he was executed, evidence surfaced, exonerating his name. He was innocent. Lee Jones, convicted in 1981, executed in 1986. He was executed for murdering a police officer only to find out after he was executed that he was innocent. There's many such cases. Claudia Jones, convicted in 1989, executed in the year 2000, yet after he was executed, new DNA research revealed that he was innocent. And what we're about to read in Isaiah 53 is the execution the brutal torture, slaughter, and execution of an innocent man. But what puts goosebumps on the back of your neck is that this person who is executed, this innocent person who is executed, was executed for crimes committed by you. For crimes committed by me. 
Because the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. We've all sinned, and he paid the price for our sins. But what makes this absolutely amazing is that he did it willingly. He could have broke free. He could have exonerated his name. He could have called legions of angels to fight for him. But he was executed for you for me willingly let's read about it isaiah 53 who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground this is a prophecy about jesus he had no form or majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him he was rejected and despised by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and watch this, we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. We didn't value him. He was crucified for us. He was slaughtered, and we didn't respect him. We didn't honor him. We didn't value him. Instead, we turned our back on him. We just, we didn't look at him. It was too hideous. And we thought he was getting exactly what he deserved. When in actuality, it was us that lusted. When we should have been holy. Not him. We deserve to die, not him. It was us who murdered in our heart by being angry with somebody without cause. Not him. He's only loved. We deserve the execution, not him. It was us that took when we should have given. It was us that was bitter when we should have forgiven. Not him. He was innocent. And yet he suffered and died willingly so that we could go free. So that we could go free. The people that I read about who were executed, can you imagine if the person who actually committed the crime, the person who actually uh, killed the police officer, or the person who actually killed the convenience store clerk, or the person who actually raped and killed the teenager, can you imagine if they were watching this person be executed for the crime they knew that they committed? Well, Jesus willingly paid the price for our sins on the cross. And they esteemed it not. Here's why they didn't esteem it. And listen closely to this. They didn't esteem it. They didn't value. Instead, they were, they were uh, ridiculing him when they should have been worshiping him. They were spitting on him when they should have been on their face being grateful. Can you imagine the person who, if the person who literally killed the convenience store clerk or the person who literally killed and raped the teenager or the person who killed the police officer, can you imagine if they were watching this person be executed instead of them, if they were ridiculing them, if they were making fun of them, if they were slandering them? Whoa. Especially if this person was doing it willingly for them, Jesus paid for our sins on the cross willingly. And they esteemed it not. And the reason that they esteemed it not is because they greatly underestimated God's holiness. 
You see, God's holiness is up here. And they thought God's holiness must not be all that. They greatly underestimated God's holiness, and they greatly exaggerated in their own minds their righteousness. Therefore, they discounted their need for a savior. They thought they needed a political leader. They thought they needed a deliverer. They thought they needed somebody who could enhance their economic stability. They thought they needed about a hundred things because they thought they had the law down, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. They thought they were doing a pretty good job. They greatly reduced God's righteousness. They greatly exaggerated their righteousness. Therefore, they discounted their need for a Savior. And they esteemed Him not. But, like Isaiah, when we have a proper understanding of God's holiness and righteousness, and Isaiah was the best of the best. Who's the best person in your life? Well, Isaiah was far more righteous. Isaiah was the best of the best. When we say here in the States, the best person we can think of is Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. Isaiah was their Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. He was the best of the best, and yet when he had a proper perspective of God's holiness in Isaiah 6 he saw the Lord high and lifted up and he saw in a vision or he was perhaps actually there creatures who were created by God for the sole purpose of worshiping him and these creatures in Isaiah chapter 6 were infinitely more intelligent than Einstein they were infinitely more articulate than Shakespeare. They were infinitely more theologically capable than Spurgeon. And when it came to ascribing honor to God, they got stumped up on this one word, holy. It means set apart. Altogether different. You see, it's not that God's just really good and we're a little worse and we need to be better. Holy means God is altogether separate. He's otherly. He's different. And they said, holy, holy, holy is what, I, is what these creatures said. And when Isaiah saw that, he didn't say, wow, God. He said, woe is me. I am ruined. The sheer weight of his holiness is going to crush me. I am like a tea candle in the presence of the noonday sun. He had a proper understanding of God's holiness. Therefore, he had a proper understanding of his lack of righteousness. Therefore, Isaiah understood that his greatest need was not a political deliverer. It was not economic stability. It was not a little more money for the end of the month. It was not people being okay with us. His greatest need was for a savior. For somebody to somehow make him right with God. Because God is holy. And he is not. And he needs a savior. If we underestimate God's holiness, we exaggerate our own righteousness. And we discount our need for a savior. But like Isaiah, when we have a proper understanding of God's holiness. And we have a proper understanding of our want of righteousness. We know that our greatest need is a savior. And this savior did come. And he paid for your sins, and he paid for my sins willingly. But in case you still don't have a proper understanding of God's holiness and think that maybe uh, you can somehow earn God's, 
acceptance of you, or you can earn maybe an equivalent standing of righteousness to stand toe-to-toe to God in fellowship. Let's very quickly go to Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 32, and what we have here is Paul explaining to the Romans, trying to help them understand, look, you're, 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 you're underestimating God's righteousness. You're overestimating your own righteousness. And he says, consider the Gentiles, people who've never heard of God. People who have no idea that God ever said, thou shalt not do this and thou ought to do that, or otherwise you will surely die. In Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, Paul says that they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and God gave them up to debased minds to do what not ought to be done. And it goes on to prosecute, Paul goes on to prosecute a case against the Gentiles that they have sinned apart from the law, and therefore they're going to die apart from the law. And Paul knows he's this really brilliant theologian, and he's leading his readers down a train of thought. And he knows in Romans chapter 1 that when he's talking about all the sinful things that these pagans do, that the Gentiles do, the non-Jews, that the Jews are going, yeah, that's right. They are a bunch of sinners. They do deserve to die. And Paul, knowing that that's exactly what they're going to be thinking, then goes on to say in Romans chapter 2 verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment... On another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is saying, look, you're pointing your finger, but what's happening? Three fingers are pointing back at you. You're pointing your finger at the Gentiles who are doing things the law says don't do and therefore are going to die without the law because the wages of sin is death. But three fingers are pointing back at you because you're doing the very same things, but you know God's word and you know God's law, so therefore your sins are greater. And then in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that very famous verse, for all have sinned. Who is the all? The Gentiles and the Jews, the pagan sinners and the moral sinners, those who sin according to the flesh and those who sin according to the prideful spirit. For all, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that goes for you, and that goes for me. You guys know how many commandments there are? The most, I mean, the, 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 the most famous ones? How many are there? Ten, right? The Ten Commandments? How many of you have heard of that? Did you know that none of us have kept even one of them? Not one. You say, well, have it murdered. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you're angry with somebody without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. You're a murderer. You say, well, have it committed adultery. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So we're all murderers and adulterers because that's a matter of the heart. In fact, we read in the book of James that if we walk somebody who might be from a different socioeconomic or or cultural background than us, we walk right past them because we we might be a little bit uncomfortable, and we walk right up to somebody who maybe is just like us, and so we're more comfortable with them, then the book of James says we've just committed the sin of favoritism or partiality, and as a result, we broke one aspect of the law, therefore we broke all the law, so therefore we have not only 
become a bigot, but we've also become a murderer, an adulterer, an idolater, and a liar. Which means God is holy, and we're not. And we desperately need a Savior from our sins. And this is why the subject of Isaiah 53 is somebody who died innocently. It's Christ who died for our sins so that we might die to sin. So let's look at it. The punishment of the innocent. Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In verse 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And that's for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was innocent. He committed no sins. He lived 33 years without sinning once, even in his heart. He lived 33 years without sinning once. And he was tempted every second of his life by an onslaught of demons more than we could ever imagine, yet without sin. Phenomenal, isn't it? And he never sinned once. And yet he was slaughtered and he died a brutal death on the cross for us. And listen to how he died. How did the people die that that I read about? Innocent people who were executed. Did they plead their innocence to their death? Some did. I've read the article. Some did. Were they angry and cursing? Some surely were. Were they, did they just have a sick feeling in their heart? Some surely did. Well, Jesus, who is innocent, who paid for your sins and my sins, how did he suffer and how did he die? The first thing that we need to know is that Jesus suffered willingly. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. He never cursed. He never lashed back. He never tried to plead his innocence. He never begged for his life. He never said, please let me go, because this is why he came. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, in fact. Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And watch this. To give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus died willingly. Secondly, Jesus died passionately. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever wondered if God really loves you? God says, Look at the cross. I did this willingly, and I did this passionately. And the Bible even says that for the joy set before him, he endured the agony of the cross. He wasn't cursing. He wasn't pleading for his life because the cross is why he came. He didn't deserve it. We deserved it. But he paid our price so that we could go free. And he did this willingly and passionately for the joy on the other side of the cross so that he could have a a relationship with us and fellowship with us. And he did this necessarily. He did this out of necessity. There was no other way. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. And Paul said, 
If we could somehow obtain righteousness to be reconciled to God, apart from faith in the cross, Jesus died for nothing. And then he suffered completely. John 19.30, Jesus said, it is finished when he was on the cross. It is finished. In other words, from the Greek, tetestela. Do you know what tetestela means? It's an accounting term. If you went and if you bought meat in the market, they gave you the meat, you paid for the money, they gave you a receipt, and they would stamp on it, tetestela. Price paid in full. And when Jesus died on the cross, he yelled, it is finished, or tetestela. Price for your sins and my sins has been paid completely. Sometimes somebody might be sentenced to go to prison for seven years, and at the end of the seven years, they would get their papers, seven years served, and it would be stamped across it, tetes de la. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished, or tetes de la, I've paid for your sins completely. All of your sins in the past, all of your sins in the future, everything has been paid for completely. And then... He paid, paid for our sins finally. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and it says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Did you see that? It was once and for all. The moment that we place our faith in what Jesus did for us, all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven because Jesus paid for all of them on the cross. That means we don't have to carry around this big bag of sorrows and guilt with us everywhere that we go because Jesus paid for it all on the cross. How many of you have ever said a little white lie? Raise your hand. All right. And for those of you who didn't raise your hand, that was your little white lie, so... We can all raise our hand. You know, a policeman pulls you over, and you say, no, officer, was I speeding? That's a little white lie. And when we say a little white lie, what happens? Our heart feels bad, doesn't it? You say a little white lie, your heart feels bad. There's a cringe of guilt. Well... What happens if you do something really big? Well, then there can be the grief of guilt. Can you imagine experiencing in one moment the weight of all of the sins that you've ever committed? How heavy your heart would feel? How grieved your heart would feel? How sorrowful, how shameful you would feel? When Jesus was on the cross, he experienced the weight of all of your sins, past, present, and future at the same moment. Multiply that by the 7.3 something billion people on this world. All of their sins, Jesus experienced that at the same moment. Along with all of the sins that everybody ever committed. Yes, Adolf Hitler. Yes, Jeffrey Dahmer. Every lustful, prideful, hateful, selfish, bitter, every sin was on the heart of Jesus. At that moment, he became sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin 
so that in Him we might become the very righteousness of God. Which is why when Jesus died, He didn't die of crucifixion or of suffocation like most crucifixion victims. You see, this is how people who were crucified died. The Romans uh, were, were, were ingenious at torture and creating suffering, agonizing suffering for people when they died. See, when people were crucified, spikes are driven through their feet and their hands, as you know, and they did it precisely so that every time they pushed up on their feet, the, the spikes would send incredible pain through their nerves. And every time they pulled up on their hands, the spikes would send incredible pain through their nerves. So there would be this incredible pain uh, surging through every nerve in their body. And they would, have to, they would have to pick themselves up to take a breath. But eventually, the muscles in their legs and shoulders and arms would start convulsing. And eventually, the pain would become so intense that they could no longer pick themselves up. And they could no longer catch a breath. And they would die of suffocation. And Jesus was experiencing that. But Jesus didn't die of suffocation. Jesus gave up the spirit. And then when the Roman soldiers came and they stabbed him in the side, the scriptures tell us that blood and water flowed. Spiritually, it's a metaphor, the blood to wash away the, the, the sins of the church and the water, the spirit of Christ to indwell us. But anatomically, medically, that's a condition of a ruptured heart. The blood and the water in your system mingle when your heart ruptures. So this tells us that Jesus did not die of suffocation. Jesus died of a ruptured heart. Because all the sins of the world were upon Christ at the same moment. And his heart broke. Which is why... And the evening before, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying with such intensity, he sweat drops of blood, and he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Why was Jesus praying in such anguish? Was he afraid of the, of, of, the, of the whipping and the torture and the crucifixion? No. We're talking about a man, a God-man, who went 33 years without sinning once. He knew how to deny his flesh. We're talking about somebody who could go 40 days in the wilderness without eating. He knew how to deny his flesh. He wasn't looking forward to that, but he wasn't dreading that. What Jesus was dreading was becoming the sins of the world. So that his heart was already in Gethsemane, sorrowful, even unto the point of death. And yet, he paid for our sins, willingly passionately, joyfully, joyfully. And it was necessary, and he did it finally and completely. He died once and for all. That means we don't have to lug around guilt and regret and fear that sin's going to catch up with us because the moment we trust in Christ, we are forgiven, we're cleansed, and God turns our consequences into blessings. So, in Isaiah 53, we read about the suffering, the punishment of the innocent. And now, let's look at the pleasure of the Father. Isaiah 53, 6. Surely, 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. And in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Did you see that? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Oh, in verse 6, every one of us has been led away, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of of, of us all. God the Father laid on God the Son the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 10, it pleased the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush the Son. Who killed Jesus? The Romans? No. The, the, The plotting, manipulating Pharisees and Sadducees of the Sanhedrin? No. Judas Iscariot who betrayed him? No. Satan who entered Judas? No. Your sins and my sins? No. God the Father killed God the Son. And when the Son was obedient to death, he was ultimately obedient to the Father. The blueprint of the crucifixion of Christ is God the Father. And it even pleased the Father to crush the Son. Though it broke his heart, it pleased him. Why? The third aspect of Isaiah 53 is for the righteousness of sinners. And this is an amazing gift. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was, notice this, prophet in 700 B.C. writing language about an execution that he shouldn't have had because the only thing he knows at this time about capital punishment is being stoned with rocks and yet listen to this language that looks like a crucifixion. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with God. Because of this gospel, we have peace. Because of this gospel, he heals our heart. He has, we have peace, and by his wounds, we are healed. We're healed from anxiety. We're healed from fear. We're healed from sorrow. We're healed from the disease of sin. And through this, we are the righteousness of God. In verse 11, because of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be righteous? You see, salvation isn't simply having your sins forgiven. Salvation is being clothed with the very righteousness of God. Phenomenal, isn't it? So that none of us will ever walk through the doors of heaven. And none of us will have fellowship with God because of things that we've done and righteousness that we've earned. But it's because of what Jesus did on the cross to forgive our sins and to clothe us with his own righteousness. Isaiah 53, 4. And because of this, we are in awe of God. Yet we, verse 4 of Isaiah 53, considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When they saw Jesus being crucified, they thought he's getting exactly what he deserves. That he was innocent. He got exactly what we deserved so that we could go free. And he did it willingly, passionately, joyfully, so that he could have a relationship with us. Theologically, this is called substitutionary atonement or the penal substitutionary atonement. Penal deals with the the judicial system, the legal system. 
Substitution, how many of you guys have had a substitute teacher before? So you get what a substitute is. It's somebody who goes in for somebody else. You see a guy playing in the NBA. He falls down and holds his ankle. He's sitting on this bench. What goes in for him? A substitute. Someone who takes the place of another. We know what atonement is. We have a good idea of atonement because in 9-11, when the towers crashed, all of America was screaming for atonement. Somebody's got to pay for this. Penal, substitutionary atonement. This is Isaiah 53. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But Jesus stepped in as our substitute and atoned for our sins. He paid the price. Let me share with you three quick stories in closing out. There were two soldiers together, and they were overseas, and a grenade landed beside them, and one soldier dove on the grenade, and he absorbed the shrapnel, and his friend lived. That's love. The Bible says, no greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for another. But that's sort of the base of the mountain of grace and penal substitutionary atonement as we're trying to get our heart to understand the gospel. So let's go up the mountain a little bit with another story. The Bible says sometimes somebody would dare die for a good man. Oh, gosh. There's people I would be honored to die for. They're better than me. It would be an honor to die for them. The Bible says sometimes that happens. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So, imagine after church, we all go outside. And you see somebody staggering down the street. And they're drunk, and they have a bottle. You know they're drunk. They're cursing. They're, they're spewing uh, just horrible words everywhere they go. And they, and they walk across the street and they're standing at the middle of the street and they're shaking their fist at the sweetest of us, and that's Iris, as the word picture goes. And they're saying bad things to her and they're threatening her and, and, and this person is threatening violence against her. And then a bus is coming and this person doesn't see the bus. And so... Can you imagine at that point, Ed runs out and he pushes that person out of harm's way and in so doing, he's killed. Now, I mean, there's many people perhaps that you would die for, or at least a handful of people that you would die for, but it's people who would probably deserve it. But can you imagine dying for somebody that did not deserve it? Well, now we're beginning to understand the gospel a little bit more. Because Jesus laid down his life for us, but we didn't deserve it. 
We were far from God. We were in hostility against God. But now we're only about halfway up in the gospel. So let's climb a little bit higher. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There's a story about a train uh, operator. He operated a, a bridge, a drawbridge, uh, for, for a train to cross. That was his job. And he's very professional about his job. And, and he, took, he took his son with him to work. And just a little boy, a curious boy. And the man looks at his watch and he sees that the train is about to be coming, so he gets ready to lower the drawbridge. And he knows that a train is coming, and this train has upon it many, many people who are, who are criminals, and they are on death row, and they're going to be executed. And so this man is sitting in his box, and he's getting ready to lower the bridge. And then when he looks up, he sees that his son got away from him, and his son was playing, and he got caught on the train tracks. And if he lowers the bridge, it will crush his son. And he sees the train coming and he knows there's not enough time to run down and save his son and come back up and push the drawbridge. So he has to make a choice. The criminals who are on the way to be executed or his son. And he does the unthinkable. He pushes the button and he watches the drawbridge close. And it crushes his son. And he watches the train pass. And that's a picture of the gospel. While we were sinners, while we deserved to die, God the Father crushed God the Son. And it pleased him to do so. So that we could be free. So that we could live. And the result of this on our lives is that we are righteous. We're friends with God. We are heaven bound. The spirit of Christ is in our heart. And when we worship, we worship with gratefulness, with humility, with boldness, with passion. And we seek to share this gospel with everyone, everywhere. So that they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So, our response to this is twofold. One, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in the work of Jesus on the cross for you, do that tonight. Secondly, if you are a Christian, surrender your life to him, every aspect of it, because you are only as free as you are surrendered. If there's perhaps some pornography in your life, surrender that to the Lord. Because you will never have joy, you will never have freedom until you are fully surrendered. Perhaps there's some area of your life that you're not trusting until the Lord. You think because of this area, God's abandoned me. God must not be involved in my life. And you might even be a little bit hateful or resentful or cold to God. 
Surrender that to the Lord. God never asked us to understand what we're going through. He just asked us to trust him. Trust him with your whole heart and watch him bring beauty out of your pain. In fact, God is most at work in you when you least understand what you're going through. That was the case when they looked at the cross and despised him and esteemed him not and considered him smitten by God. They least understood what God was up to and he was most at work for his glory and their greatest good. Perhaps you need to surrender to God's sovereignty, that he loves you, that he's for you, that he's working all things together for his glory and your good. Perhaps you need to struggle, perhaps you need to surrender resentment in your heart. There's somebody who hurt you and you need to pray for them and bless them and do good to them. As you've received grace, you need to give grace. As you've been forgiven, you need to forgive. Perhaps you need to surrender your secret identity as a follower of Christ. One time a couple of brothers met here at HopeWorks. They knew each other, but they crossed paths here. They worked together for 10 years. And when they saw each other, they said, oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. I didn't know you were a Christian either. They were secret Christians. Perhaps you need to surrender your secrecy and let the whole world know what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus will do for them. What is God asking you to surrender to him tonight? Can you imagine God the Father loves you so much? He's willing to crush the Son on the cross to forgive your sins and to clothe you with righteousness and to spend forever with you in heaven. And can you imagine Jesus loves you so much that he willingly, passionately, joyfully did it? Now, let's tell everyone everywhere about this good news. Would you bow your heads with me? If there's anybody here who needs to receive salvation, then just do that right now. In the recesses of your heart, pray, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. My greatest need is, is, is not a whole bunch of stuff. My greatest need is a savior because you're holy and I am not and I need a savior from my sins and I believe that you've paid for my sins on the cross and perhaps you've already trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior what do you need to surrender to Jesus tonight what do you need to surrender resentment pray for your offender let him go let God bless you, finally. Be free from that hurt, finally. What do you need to surrender? Pornography? Some sin? Some aspect of your life nobody knows about? Do you need to surrender that? Again, you are only as free and joy-filled as you are surrendered. What do you need to surrender? Some aspect of your life that you don't understand and it's caused you to resent God trust him trust his love trust his goodness what do you need to surrender let's do that now father we surrender all because you are worthy of all we surrender everything we let it go right now. We turn from it right now. We give it to you right now. We trust you right now. 
Maybe you need to surrender fear of the future. God is with you. God is for you. We surrender everything, Lord. And if you would just look at me for this closing statement, Jesus held nothing back as he paid for your sins on the cross. Now, let's hold nothing back as we seek him through his word, through prayer. Jesus passionately paid for our sins on the cross. Now, let's passionately live for him. So grateful each of you are here this evening. God loves you so much. So do I. Seek the face of God this week. Tell everyone everywhere what Jesus has done for them on the cross and what it will do in their life. So, you are dismissed, but before you leave, please find two or three people and give them a hug, and then you're dismissed. God bless you.